Now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode seven, we talked with a research team from Colorado Mesa University, which has built one of the largest body farms in the country. The Colorado Mesa University's Forensic Investigation Research Station has developed methods to estimate post-mortem interval in their unusually dry climate using quantitative and statistical methods. Their research looks at novel ways to measure PMI, including the electrical conductance properties of a cadaver or bioelectric impedance analysis. In keeping with our season theme, numbers, we talk about how to correlate observations with desiccation since time of death and anti-mortem metrics. Funding for this episode is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to this edition of the Just Science podcast. We're at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in New Orleans. This is our uh, podcast series focusing in on people who presented at the NIJ Research Symposium. We've had a lot of great interactions with some very important work that's being done in forensic science. With us right now, Dr. Melissa Connor from Colorado Mesa University, her colleague, Dr. Eric Hansen, and Chrissy Bajent, all from Colorado Mesa University. And uh, they're gonna be talking to us on one of the more grisly topics of the day, which is post-mortem interval determination. So, Melissa, tell me a little bit about Colorado Mesa University and the program in general there. Well, John, uh, Colorado Mesa is on the west slope of Colorado. We're in Grand Junction, Colorado. We have one of six facilities in the United States that uses human remains to look at how bodies decay after death. We're at 4,700 feet above mean sea level. We are by far the highest in elevation. We only get about eight inches of rain a year, so we're by far the driest. For years, they'll turn into desiccated mummies before skeletonizing. So we had talks about how we could look at the post-mortem interval with this period that initially seemed like stasis, but as we started to look at it more and more, we realized there are very slow changes, but it's not a stasis. So how long has Colorado Mesa been in the body farm business? When did you all start your work? I came on board in 2012 and people have been talking about it. They already had a fence up, they had plans for the indoor and the outdoor laboratory that we use and the facilities are just, just gorgeous, they're beautiful. We started with pigs in the fall of 2013. We got our first human donations in uh, the fall of 2013. We now have just under 50 human donations that we've placed in the outdoor facility and we're starting to bring them into mass rate and we're building a skeletal collection reflective of the modern population of the West Slope. Wow, that's actually a fairly substantial size though. That's an awful lot of donations uh, considering the amount of time you've been doing it and also relative to other body farms. We start human donations about a year after Southern Illinois at Carbondale and we've surpassed them in number. The facilities nearer larger population centers like the ones in Texas that are near Dallas or Houston, they get a lot of bodies per year. So does Tennessee Knoxville, which of course is one of the older facilities that many people have heard from and they're running a couple hundred bodies 
bodies a year. We're running about 19 bodies a year right now, and that's really what we can handle very comfortably. So what's your background? Had you been doing this prior to coming to Colorado Mesa, or what's your technical work background in that regard? I started out in archaeology, working for the Park Service, and I sigged into forensic science. I did some work at the Little Bighorn Battlefield. An anthropologist named Clyde Snow came up to help us work with the human remains from the Little Bighorn. And Clyde, at the same time, worked with a group called Physicians for Human Rights. Well, Clyde saw what we were doing at the Little Bighorn. He said, you guys have got to take this to a real battlefield. Mm -hmm. So when PHR got the contract with the United Nations Truth Commission to go into Croatia in 1993, he said, put together a team. We're going to go over and take a look at crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide. So that's when I start working with fresh bodies. I worked with PHR off and on through the early 2000s, worked with some other folks in Iraq and elsewhere. Meanwhile, I moved from the Park Service to teaching, and one of the courses I taught was human remains recovery, and my students, I started out with plastic skeletons, and the students wanted something more realistic, so I started burying pigs in my backyard. Okay. We had... That's a little weird, but we'll go with that. That's fine, <laughs> Melissa. But then Colorado Mesa opened up the position, and it said for somebody to run a body farm, and I told them about all my pigs in my backyard, and yeah. it seemed like I was a good fit. So now, who, your colleagues here, Eric and Chrissy, why don't you all each tell me a little bit about how you came into Colorado Mesa and how you fit into the program as well. So this is Eric. My background's actually quite different from both Melissa and Chrissy. So I'm actually an aquatic ecologist and I study fish ecology. And so I came to Colorado Mesa because I'm interested in native fish conservation. And there's several sensitive and endangered fish species in the Colorado River drainage. And so my background's all ecology. And how I got linked to the forensics is I've been working on some techniques to estimate how fat fish are without having to kill them. And so what I do is hook electrodes up to the fish, send a current through them, and then I make these models to predict their fat mass. And then Melissa and I were talking about some of the things that she's doing at the body farm. And I said, I've got an idea that I think will work. And so we started talking more, and this sort of led to the collaboration in my introduction to the forensics world. That's interesting. Chrissy, tell me about where you're coming from and how you got to Colorado Mesa and got involved with these two interesting people. My background is in forensic anthropology. After finishing my master's degree, working in and around Denver for several jurisdictions, doing uh, recovery and analysis of human remains, unknown dead, and teaching at several universities in the Denver area as an affiliate, and interning at the Denver office of the medical examiner. <laughs> And it was there, I saw their posting for this assistant position, and I was all over it. Well, Denver has a reputation of one of the most cutting-edge departments with respect to forensic science that's out there. So you know, we're very, very fortunate to have people like Greg LaBerge and other folks who've been so influential in the forensics community coming out of Colorado. Tell me more about the particular NIJ project. You alluded to it earlier. It's trying to look at this issue of doing post-mortem interval in environmental conditions that are slightly different from what we might call traditional or other work that's been done. Is that right? Right. A lot of the work's been done on post-mortem intervals where the trajectory is a fairly quick skeletonization. We don't have that for the most part. We have a much slower trajectory towards skeletonization that can take two, three, four years, depending on a number of factors. So trying to determine that post-mortem interval in that period a very slow change is what this grant's about. 
I look at it from a morphological point of view, just exactly what are those changes that we're looking at that we don't see necessarily on that faster trajectory. And Chrissy's been pointing stuff out as she's been taking the pictures and doing the observations. We've got color changes that we don't necessarily see. We've got changes in the epidermis, a pebbled mosaic kind of that shows up in a late stage desiccation before it goes to a parchment. So generally the trajectory is that the tissues desiccate and then thin out to the point that they can be broken mechanically through rin, rain, small scavengers, and then scalpinization starts to occur. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to look at that over time and then correlate those changes with accumulated degree days, which is our index towards the postmortem. Eric's got a whole different take on it and then he combines the two techniques in a statistical analysis. And where we're going is one, we've got to use human bodies for this. Mm -hmm. We can't use proxies like pigs because the changes that we're looking at are so fine grained, we really don't see them at pigs. We need long-term longitudinal studies for both our techniques. And like anthropologists who determine stature if they had a whole skeleton, they would never do that from a single bone. You use multiple bones and combine it. If we have multiple techniques to get to long-term PMI, we need to be able to combine them into these sophisticated statistical models that Dr. Hansen can do. Sure. So when I think about PMI, I think about it more short-term, and I think about maggots, right? I mean, that's, right. so do you see differences on the short-term side are you still seeing the, the kind of the maggot etiology there, or is it a different thing altogether? Yes, we do see the maggots. We, we see a really quick maggot bloom in the right seasons. We're working with an entomologist from, not under this grant, but adjacent, an entomologist from Cornell, Elson Shields, and he's going to start helping us more with that entomology. We basically see four scenarios when the insects approach. During summer, it's almost too hot. They can get a, a good couple of first larva maggot runs at the body, but then the tissue starts to desiccate so much that the third instar maggots or the maggots really can't eat it. Mm -hmm. And so they leave the body. During winter, of course, it's too cold for the maggots. When the temperature warms up, the body has already started to desiccate through sublimation. What we think is happening is that the tissue is getting too tough then for the maggots to consume. So we have windows in the spring and the fall where we get more maggot consumption of the tissue. So you can relate this to season, you can relate it to time, humidity. Now the next thing I think about is bloating. I saw on some of your slides that you are seeing bloating. Is the dynamics of bloating the same when you're in these kinds of dry, high altitude environments as it might be in more temperate climates or here in Louisiana or wherever it might be. For most of the year, yes. During the winter, we might see a delayed bloat. There might not be any during the winter, and then we'll see the slight bloat come up in spring or summer because by that time, the tissue is, is kind of tough and desiccated. Yeah. The bacteria really have to be growing to get that bloat to the point that it's visible. So your research is designed around trying to kind of take a step back and look at a, a broader range of metrics with the idea that you're coming upon some remains, right? You know, theoretically in a practice perspective and an unknown time after death. So which metrics are, are you focusing on to solve that problem? Yeah, for most of this, we've done this in a Likert scale so that we okay. can score it and then have a score for that we call the total body desiccation score. 
from my perspective, what we're doing is we're using electrical currents to go and try to understand the post-mortem interval. So right. we're using much lower amperage than maybe what Dr. Frankenstein used, but we're still sending an electrical current through the body. And basically, as you can view the, the body as an electrical circuit, as it decomposes, you're changing the format of that circuit or the arrangement of the circuit. Mm -hmm. So using these electrical currents, we can sort of see how that circuit changes. And so a living mind. body, if you look at it, you know, almost any two random points, you'll get like 500 ohms to a kilo ohm or something like that of resistance, with most of the variation basically being contact resistance. You know, where are the variations occurring here as the body decomposes? So the two measurements we take are resistance and reactance. And so resistance, it's mainly the extracellular fluid. So it's that friction that occurs. So as your fluid volume changes, if you get less fluid, you're gonna get more resistance. Same with ion concentration. Mm -hmm. Whereas reactants, your cell membranes, they're capacitors, so they're holding the charge. So we're using an alternating current. And so as they hold that charge, we're able to detect the reactants or measure the reactants. As those cells break down and we don't have intact cell membranes, we lose our reactants. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we're at in getting our measurements. From the other things, we're testing different electrode types. So in living humans, they use this bioelectrical impedance analysis to estimate body fat, body water. Right. So have you, have you seen those like bathroom scales? You take your shoes off, you stand on. So we're looking at different electrodes to go and see which ones work best. So with living ones, they use these gel pads that stick to you mm -hmm. because in people, they don't want needles stuck in them. And so we're testing that and they have this gel that's conductive and you still get that galvanic skin response of it. Yeah, but the stuff sticking... I'm familiar with in terms of living people are studies with respect to tasers, right? Okay. Where you actually are sticking people. <laughs> but of course, it's basically the same idea, but at much higher voltages yeah. and probably even higher currents than what you're looking at. So we're running at 50 kilohertz 400 microamps. So mm -hmm. in a living person, I can hook this equipment up to myself and I can't feel the current at mm -hmm. all. So it's designed to not cause pain. With this, we do have some of that concern where the gel pads, they don't give us as long of a reading as when we put hypodermic needles that are getting past that desiccated skin to run our currents between. So again, my naivete is gonna show through there. I mean, the way that Melissa describes the decomposition process you're seeing a pretty wide variety of matrices over a period of months and years, right? And so in some cases, there'll be something like flesh that might be easier to do that kind of work with, and other times it might be parchment or skin and bone at that point. So the parchment level or the bone level, the frequencies we're using, we can't get a reading. But before then, depending on the gel pad we're using and the length of the circuit. So we are looking at different body segments. So if we go from the foot to the hand, that's a really long circuit. And so it's easier to break that circuit with decomposition. We do this approach that we call a fixed measurement. We're doing a very short measurement, say at the femur, you know, in the tissue along the femur, using that as our landmark. And so that circuit's more likely to stay intact longer. Mm -hmm. and the different parts of the body will decompose at different rates. Is the femur something that you've found by experience or is that something you, I mean, is that always the best place or is there a set of considerations involved there? I would say we started testing it there just due to muscle and tissue thickness. So we tend to uh, retain those traits longer so we can use this fixed analysis, fixed BIA analysis in this area. Trying to figure out which ones best correlate 
with the postmortem interval and which ones will help us build a better statistical model for predicting the postmortem. So interval. basically what you're doing is you want to be able to get a, I guess really two, it's impedance and capacitance really when it comes to uh, measurements. And your theory is that the impedance is going to increase and the reactivity, as it were, would decrease over time. Reactance, because you're losing those cell membrane. And impedance, it's a combination of both the resistance and reactance, but uh -huh. resistance sort of dominates but the, the impedance. That doesn't necessarily work in with the total body desiccation score. Do the two correlate reasonably well, or is that another part of your research? So that's where the statistical modeling comes in. So we could use the total body score sort of as a calibrator for where we'd sort of expect the BIA measurements to be. And so we can put both techniques in a, a model and use them as predictors to help go and strengthen our models. Because alone, they might do fine, but together, I think they're much more powerful and hopefully increase our accuracy and our precision. So the data, as I saw it in the presentation, I mean, you definitely see, for total body desiccation, you definitely see a change in the score, an increase in the score over time. But there's also a fair amount of variation that you've seen, too, right. across the bodies. And we're still trying to work that variation down. Things like bloat, they're really mainly below 500 ADD. That's an early stage. So it correlates with so much else that also goes into the lower stage that maybe we'll try the model without bloat and be able to get some of that variation down. So you're basically anticipating looking at the total body desiccation score and the things that go with that. Mm -hmm. You're looking at the BIA. What does that stand for again? Bioelectrical impedance analysis. Okay. I can... Mouthful. And, and of course now a lot of folks are looking at other kinds of elements here, but is it your feeling that from those two measurements you'll be able to get within uh, a reasonable long-term issues here in terms of estimating on PMI, right? Yeah. The shorter term we have, the better tools we have in estimating PMI. I mean, if you're looking at 72 hours after death, I think we've got some excellent tools. If you're looking at 30 days after death, I think we've got some good tools or whatever is a step just below excellent. But mm -hmm. the longer term you're out, and particularly in an environment like ours, you know, it's a shrug of the shoulder sometimes. You've got the casework to back that up, I think. What do you think, Chrissy? I, I think that's correct, and I think the variation you mentioned, that's always going to be a reality of postmortem interval studies because you have so many variables with individual body composition on top of several environmental variables. I think that's what's kind of special about what's being done here is there's been a focus on shrinking those variables down to try to find that magic bullet for estimating postmortem interval. And I think what we're doing here, kind of puffing those back up so we can take into account much more variables, is the way we need to go with these very dynamic biological processes. Most of what we're seeing, really, from a practice perspective, might be the result of criminal activity, but it also is just the response of, of human trafficking activity as much as anything else, isn't that right? And so it's very difficult necessarily to be able to connect an individual even to you know, their point of origin as well as trying to find out what went on with them. You know, how did they end up in the middle of the right. desert? Oh yeah, if we're going to put that in investigation context, then we have a whole new set of variables. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, this is trying to contribute to that overall investigation because yes, as you said, we get into issues of origin. So we would like to contend with how long has this person been out here? <laughs> and then we can go from there.
there's really kind of a few different ways of looking at this. So there's the folks that might be human trafficking or whatever else it might be, in, especially in the Southwest. You mentioned, of course, this issue of human rights violations uh, globally, and you presented some very nice data. It's unfortunate that these climates haven't really been studied as much as they have, because a lot of the places where you have human rights problems, where you had you know, mass graves and things of that nature, really is uh, environments very similar to what you're experience what you're looking at, isn't it? Absolutely. I think one of the pluses of working where Colorado Mesa University is located in our semi-arid step is that we're really quite akin to many very geopolitically sensitive areas. So we may actually relate more to bodies that are in Iraq than in Iowa. Yeah, that's right. So, and then the, the third element, which I think is interesting because this is an area that kind of uh, overlaps. You mentioned that you come from a background in archeology, span right? And some of the other work that you all have been involved in actually goes beyond forensic science. So do you think some of this can be applied in those areas as well? Or? No, I think much of the work that we're doing, particularly in terms of desiccated remains, may help enlighten the environmental conditions which create natural mummies wherever we find them. Mm -hmm. from Western Colorado, where we have Native American natural mummies, to the coast of South America, Peru and Chile, where we find natural mummies. But what exactly are the conditions, we say high altitude through sublimation, it clearly has to be some form of insect exclusion for some reason. Why aren't the insects colonizing these individuals? And I think some of what we're finding out about things like that will help to illuminate that. Yeah, so you've already got some of your findings that you alluded to are actually hit that directly as to, you know, at some point the maggots aren't even able to chew the tough remains. And yeah. So, again, a naive question. So, so what is a mummy, really, when it comes down to it? And how does it relate to this process of the decomposition that you're seeing in the arid climate in the reality? Well, I think you could probably do a whole nother podcast on that question of what is a mummy. Because, of course, you think about Egypt. You have man-created mummies through embalming processes and that then desiccate. We have natural mummification in areas that are quite cold where the bodies are sublimating or the water simply going out without becoming water. And then we have desiccation and... What's the difference Colorado. between desiccation and mummification? Or is desiccation just a part of the mummification process? Or am I getting to, I don't know. Yeah, some people can use the terms interchangeably. Okay. I like to think of desiccation as a process that may result in a mummy or a desiccated set of remains. Yeah, desiccation I think you could generally say is stages of water loss, if you're putting it very, very simply, where mummification is going to constitute maybe cultural practices like in Egypt or something, where maybe something's being introduced to the body, there's a cultural component to what's going on there. So this raises an interesting question. My assumption has always been that they're basically bone, skin, muscle, right, not internal organ. The man-made mummies, didn't they Viscerated, right? yeah, so you're removing a lot of uh, microbiomes there, which are huge in the decomposition process. So, so that's a major driving factor in that mummification, cultural process versus sort of water loss or other more, I guess, natural trajectories, to say it very basically. So do you see those kinds of things actually in the natural area that you're looking at. So is there an evisceration that happens because the maggots are going after the organs or something like that? And that's why you really need to go after muscle? Or what kind of processes are you seeing in that regard on a natural basis? 
I mean, the maggots can get in and eat out the viscera and eviscerate it, but we actually do see, and Chrissy's been doing a lot of our maceration or what she helps us take the bodies in and then clean them up down to bone. So I'll let you Please. tell what you see when you do that. One of the interesting things in our region is the assumption is with desiccation that you just end up with a tissue shell, which we do in part, but we also do end up with retained sort of desiccated viscera. So the tissue structures are still there. They've just desiccated. So I've pulled out pleural sheets in some cases, desiccated little remains of a heart. We do, I think this is another sort of very unique and underappreciated aspect is we are actually retaining some of these structures, probably having to do with thresholds of the microbiome within the individuals and when we're putting them out seasonally, temperature, all these complex processes. We understand as a general driving process, but we don't know specifically maybe what those thresholds are or what that effect is. So that's another really unique thing about our region is from what I understand published research wise, this hasn't been seen a lot and certainly not in these decomposition facilities. Microbiome is a hot topic, both in this area more broadly. Are you all hoping to connect some of your work into a better understanding uh, from the microbiome? We're actually a site, uh, we're working with University of Colorado Boulder on some research NIJ funded research <laughs> with Rob Knight and Jessica Metcalf on oh. a microbiome project. So we are swabbing our bodies for that project. They have a 21 day window. We go out and swab the bodies in two places and take control samples from the soil. Then we freeze that, and send it off to Boulder where the magic happens. Sure. And so we'll be getting data on our specific microbiome as they get those processed. You'll actually be able to take that data and under this yeah. work actually looking at both your kind of more visual oriented score as well as the impedance score and things like that and try to do some correlations. Maybe even looking at you know some of these desiccation processes and related there as well. And we would love to take as many little pieces of twine as we can and braid them together into an ever stronger PMI estimate. That's one of the cool things about some of the work we're doing is, you know, archaeologists, anthropologists, ecologists, entomologists from Cornell. We have a biochemist that works, Dr. Kim White, that's working with us. We're looking at lipids in the soil and some other things, you know. So it's very multidisciplinary. And so we get all these different perspectives that give us ideas and increase our knowledge and ways to approach things. I want to be respectful to the process that you go through. I know that it must be a very difficult thing for somebody to say, okay, I want to donate my body to this particular work, right? But there is a, a, you know, there is a difference between somebody who pretty much elderly folks versus who you might see in a human trafficking perspective or where you, who you might see in a human rights issue in Iraq or something like that. They're in different parts of life. Is that, won't that change this microbiome issue in particular? We actually have a subset of who are, our youngest I think is about 33 and then our oldest was 103. So we have a fairly large span of age groups. We have different causes of death some of which were violent, as opposed to cancer, as opposed to long-term chronic diseases correlated with old age. So we can, particularly as our sample size gets larger, but again, we're right about 50 now, we can start to correlate some of the differences that we see in decomposition with some of these factors. 
And we do have a very small subgroup that goes relatively quickly on a trajectory towards skeletonization. So we're pulling those out and trying to figure out, is it elderly people, maybe with some very thin skin? Literally and not figuratively. <laughs> right. <laughs> but why is it that they can go to this totally different trajectory than the majority of our bodies? It's amazing, isn't it, Chrissy, when you go out there and you've placed somebody six months earlier and you're seeing 70% skeleton when most of our bodies desiccate. That's what I was alluding to when I was saying you're always going to have some variation because you're talking about just intrinsic differences that might be age-related, might be sex-related, might be so-called health-related, like tissue density, collagen density. And there are absolutely people who say PMI studies are a waste of time, there's too many variables but that's not how you go about science. Right. We're trying to suss out those variables and we're trying to sort of correlate what they mean and how meaningful are they or are they variables that can be tossed out? Do we need to be focusing on this certain set or subset? And that's sort of the goal here by attacking it from several different positions. Well, yeah, and you're addressing this to some degree because you are looking at human remains here. You, you're not doing any animal remains at this point at all, right? Right, correct. And uh, obviously there's, just in terms of diet alone, you're gonna have a, have a lot of differences there. Yeah. So the implication question here to me is, I understand, so the bioelectrical impedance analysis is definitely in the research stage, right? And that's something that you really have a lot more work to do, but to me, the total body desiccation score seems to me very well grounded in many respects. At what point do you think, or is it now, ready for prime time with respect to practice and, and application? Uh, it's based on another model, the total body scour that came out in 1995. So we've been working on these morphological changes as a discipline for decades, which is why it's probably seems better grounded. And then we're coming off of that for our microenvironment. Mm -hmm. And I think we can use it to some degree now. I would like to give us another year or two before we set it out to law enforcement and start getting some more of these variables sussed out to a little tighter PMI. But it is something that can be done by coroner's offices or law enforcement. We're trying to make it with relatively minimal training. We're trying to build a visual dictionary so that when we say this type of color, we can have an online resource for somebody to go to and, and match. We're trying to make it so that we can put it out and have law enforcement, coroners, deputies, whoever needs to be able to take the tool with relatively little inner observer error because that's another thing that we need to look at. And we're doing that with our students. I mean, if I can take an undergraduate student and train them in a week to do TBDS with a relatively low inner observer error, hopefully we can take our, our more educated law enforcement and, and coroner colleagues and do the same thing. The measurements that you're talking about doing with TBDS are not inaccessible to law enforcement. They can be done right now. If you have color vision and no red-green color blindness, they could do them now. I think the red-green, because we do see these orange colors, depending on how bad it is, might have an impact on what somebody's recording. So you're in the middle right now of your NIJ grant. So tell me, what do you expect you know, for the remainder of your NIJ grant in terms of what you intend to do and what we can expect to hear like at next year's AAFS meeting? Well, what we did a lot this year, and people who have been in the position of having accumulated huge amounts of data, because we have a weather station that's taking what 
six measurements hourly. Then we have the daily total body score. We take photographs. Then we have the BIA. And all of this into an access database. And now that's an upkeep. But that initial startup of the database, it was painful. Sure. And so now we can really pull out the data. We'd like to get Eric at least another 10 bodies. We're at the point where we're, we've compared some different electrodes, we're comparing some other techniques, and now it's more focused on analysis and fine-tuning, building sample size so we can build some more complex models and seeing what we understand what's going on using the BIA. And so there's, it's starting to get a lot of fun now with some of the analysis and actually seeing the results. Like some of the stuff that was presented in Chrissy's presentation was hot off the computer. The difficulty of what you're doing is not to be underestimated. One of the things I like to tell folks is that, you know, resistance in particular is one of those interesting things where you're looking at a huge number of orders of magnitude of variation that you can have. You can have 20 to 25 orders of magnitude of variation in a particular material depending upon what its structure is. And its temperature. And it's, yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is the same as like the difference between something that's smaller than a millimeter and the size of the galaxy, right? That's how much variation there is. So doing it right is an art and as well as a science in some respects. So it'd be wonderful if we had a giant room where we could control the temperatures and have 20 bodies all hooked up to auto recording units and to simplify it. But I think having it out in the outdoor facility and having some of this natural variation, we can get a greater understanding of what the field application of it will be, you know. What are the things that are hard to do if this technique is used by a law enforcement personnel or something like that, you know. So we're going through, it's like, what can we simplify? What does better? What doesn't work? And so that's happening at the same time as we're looking at just the basic science of the technique too. That's great. He has to be able to explain it to me. And then if he can explain it to me and I can take the little machine and put the little pins in at the right place, I think we can teach it to law enforcement. Sure. There was a time when there wasn't as much research going on in forensic anthropology. I think we're really in a, a great time for research in forensic anthropology. You all are a great example of that. I think we're learning an enormous amount. and I know it will bear great, great fruit over the next few years. Uh, it must be an exciting time to be in the field. I'm having fun. It is. It's really, really great. Yeah, I think the entire strengthening of the forensic sciences started in 2009 with the report of that name. Mm -hmm. It's made us realize there's all this base research, really, mm -hmm. really solid base research mm -hmm. that needs to be done, and it's a lot of fun. One of the things we haven't talked about is that Colorado Mesa University is a teaching institution. So mm -hmm. we have 15 undergraduates at this meeting, and we're instilling this research ethic into the next generation. In fact, we have an undergraduate student who should be standing at her poster right this instant <laughs> national meeting. She's working on using the gel pad electrodes with the BIA. So that mm -hmm. was our first approach. And so she's presenting on some of the initial work with that, looking at correlations between accumulated degree days and different BIA metrics. So resistance, reactance, impedance, spacing, all things like that for different body segments to say, okay, these ones are working well. These are ones to consider for our models. It's been a great experience for her, I believe. Well, this has been great. This is an enormously uh, fun conversation for me, a little bit grisly, but that, only in a good way. And I uh, wish you all the, the best of luck in, in your work with NIJ. And I'm really, I'm looking forward to hearing more about your results in the future. Thank you, John. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Next week on Just Science, we will be speaking with Dr. Christopher Krebs on prison and college campus sexual assault surveying. Please visit the FTCOE's website at ForensicsCOE.org to learn more about this episode and to watch the Colorado Mesa R&D Symposium webinar that was recorded at the 2017 AFS Annual Scientific Meeting.